John 1:14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, good morning, Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning, whether you're here in the West service with me or over in our East service or watching online. Thanks for being here, especially for coming out on this awful weather morning. I tell people who don't live here all the time, it is not the two feet of snow in December that will crush you. It is the snow in April. That is what makes you wonder where life went wrong. But at some point, we're going to get past this, and thanks for weathering it with us here this morning. And I am so excited to continue our sermon series looking at the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, 10 weeks on 18 verses. And that's because these are some of the most important verses in all of the Bible, because they tell us very clearly who Jesus is and why who he is is so significant to us. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out Open it up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Take out your phone, your iPad, whatever you have. Uh, flip open John, chapter 1. You're watching online. Open that web browser and Google John 1. If you're here in the West service or over in the East service, we actually have Bibles provided for you. Here you'll find it in the pew in front of you. Over in East service, they're in the back of the room, or you can even throw up your hand, and someone will bring you one. And I, I think today's reading is on page 833, 834, somewhere like that. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, all you got to do is be able to count, and you can find it and be there with us. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. So take it and read it this week. The Gospel of John is a great book for you to read as an introduction to Christianity. But as you're turning there, let me offer you the three-point outline I'm going to use to guide our time together. If you're a note taker, it'd be great for you to write this down. And if you're not, that's okay. Just kind of have these in your head to help guide our time together. Three points, and they go like this. I want to talk about what comes before this verse, what happens in this verse, and what can happen because of this verse. Okay, what comes before this verse, what happens in this verse, and what can happen because of this verse. All right, let's start with what comes before this verse. The Bible is one big story. It is one big story about what God is doing in human history through Jesus Christ. And so because it is one story, it is often important to understand where you are in the story by looking at what's come before. You can think about it this way. Let's say that you were watching your favorite series on your favorite streaming platform, and you were on episode one of season two. And in the scene you're watching, the villain is seeking to romance the main character. And he's lying to her and manipulating her, and you just hate him. But your friend walks in, sits down on the couch next to you, and after a few minutes says, well, he seems nice. I really hope they get together. Right? You would pause it and say, what? What are you talking about? Don't you? You don't know who he is. You don't know what he did to her sister. This is sounding a little more like a soap opera now that I think about it, but you don't know about the alien baby and so forth, right? What you would be saying to your friend is what you think you're watching is not really what you're watching if you just knew what came before that scene. Well, it's no different when you read the Bible. 
that sometimes to really get the impact of a particular scene in the story, it's important for us to know what comes before. So I want to show you two things that come before this verse that are incredibly important to understanding this verse. Two problems. I call them the problem of distance and the problem of nearness. Okay, the problem of distance and the problem of nearness. So the Bible tells us in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, that when God made Adam and Eve our first parents and rested them in the Garden of Eden, he made them, among other things, to enjoy relationship with him. Adam and Eve were meant to know God, to have relationship with God, to communicate with him. He walked with them and talked with them. When they had a question, they could go straight to him. There really was no religion, no services, no priests, nobody in between them and God. They were made to have direct access and be in relationship with God. That is what it means to be human. But in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that that Adam and Eve broke the one rule of the garden, which was really, if you think about it, that they were just being asked to trust God. In Genesis 2, God takes a tree and he puts it in the middle of the garden and he says, don't eat from this tree. What he's really saying is, hey, what makes this whole paradise work is that you trust me. I'm God. You're not God. You're special. You matter to me. You are my favorite of all the things that I've made, but you are not God. You need to trust me. And in Genesis 3, we find out that Adam and Eve did not. And ultimately, because they did not trust God, they ate from the tree, and our world changed. And one of the immediate changes that happens is that God sends them out of the Garden of Eden. He sends them east of the Garden. Their consequence is they no longer will live with God. They're no longer in relationship with God, at least not in the same way. They don't talk with Him, at least not in the same way. The Bible tells us this is the human condition. By the way, we were made to know God, and yet because of Adam and Eve's sin, their inability to trust God and ours, there's a great distance between us and God. Now, you don't need me to tell you that theologically. You've experienced that. Because there's not a person in this room that hasn't laid awake one night in their bed saying, God, are you out there? God, do you care? Do you see me? God, if you're there, would you just show me? Would you give me a sign? Would you make yourself evident to me? God, are you out there? Listen, if you've ever prayed that prayer, the Bible says it's not unique to you. You are not specially separated from God. You are simply human. You are not content to not know God. You were made to know him. That's why every culture that's ever existed has some answer for God. We, we know deep down we were made to know God, and yet we also know we are separated from him. We are distant from him. That is the state in which we find ourselves. By the way, American author John, Stein, John Steinbeck wrote a great book called East of Eden, and his whole premise is that we are disconnected. He's not a, not a Christian, by the way, but his premise is we're disconnected from the purpose we were made for, and we try everything to get back into Eden, but we can't seem to find our way back. What he's hitting on, what you have experienced, what I have experienced, is what the Bible calls the problem 
of distance. But there's another problem. And that is that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, something fundamental about them changed. Something changed about who they were so that God's presence to them was no longer good news. I call this the problem of nearness. So that even in Genesis 3, after they've eaten from the tree, when they hear God coming, they hide from him. That's fascinating because this is the God they were walking and talking with in Genesis 2. But something has changed. Now God's presence is something to be frightened of because they have sinned against him. There's a distance between them and God, and it is their fault. And so because of that, they are frightened by God. They, They want to hide from God. They're not looking forward to a conversation with God. And they're right to do that because God is not like them. See, when we think about God, we tend to think about God as this great grandfather in the sky, $20 bill in one pocket and a Werther's original in the other one ready to solve any problem with either the candy or the money. And look, God is kind, and he is warm, and he is helpful, but he's also much more than that. The Bible tells us that God is holy, meaning he's not like us. He is awesome. He's majestic. In fact, there are multiple times in the Bible where you get the impression that God is so great that if we were to really see him, we would melt. Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Like that. In fact, there's this great chapter in the book of Exodus, which is in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 33, where Moses, you've heard of Moses, right? I mean, Moses is a really important figure in the story of the Bible. Moses is so important that when they made a movie of his life, they got Charlton Heston to play him. Yeah, that's how important he is. Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. What he's really saying is, God, give me an Eden moment. Give me this moment where you and I are face to face. Talk to him. God, it's me, Moses. You're asking me to lead your people into the promised land. Show me your glory, God. And here's what God says. Moses, I can't. If I show you my glory, you will die. You see, God is so much bigger than you imagine. He's so much greater than I can conceive. So here's what the Bible is telling us. We are distant from God. But when we lay in bed in our, in our beds at night saying, God, are you out there? And if you're here, would you just drop down into my bedroom? If you're here right now, God, would you just drop down in this room right now? And the Bible tells us that one of the reasons God doesn't do that is because he loves us. Because if he did do that, you would die. It would be too much. It would be like pouring 20 ounces of a liquid into a four-ounce cup. You cannot contain it. I am not ready for it. You see, this is what the Bible tells us is our state. We were made to know God, and yet God is distant from us, and it's our fault. And even if he did draw near to us, we would disintegrate. God's revelation would lead to our disintegration. So what are we supposed to do? Well, that's what leads me to show you what's happening in this verse. That's my second point. See, once you know what comes before it, the problem of distance and the problem of nearness, all of a sudden the words of this verse come alive. Let's read it together. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, what's going on there? Well, a lot of things. Let me try to unpack them. First, when he says, and the word, 
We know that he's referencing what came earlier in the chapter. You remember John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John was telling us in verse 1 that Jesus isn't part of God or showing us a side of God. He is all the way God. He is literally the expression of the mind of God. He created all things. Jesus is fully God. So in John 1.14, when it says, and the word became flesh, it's saying that God, that God who made, that God who shaped, that God who is distant, that God who can't be near because of his holiness and his awesomeness and his majesty, that God became a man. And what's fascinating about that is that John says, because the word became flesh, we could see his glory. You see, the incarnation of Jesus is evidence of two things. The first thing it is evidence of is that God is not okay with the distance between us. God is not okay with that. God wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to go to him. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants that so much, he did not wait for us to overcome the separation, as though we could have. He became flesh. Do you realize what that means? It means that distance from God is now not inevitable, it's a choice. Do you hear that? Distance from God is not inevitable, it's a choice. Because the writer is saying this God, this word, this world creator, this awesome, holy, majestic God, he became flesh. I love the way one commentator put it. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he said one way you could read this is the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, which I love. Because the sentiment here is that God desired to bridge the gap between him and us, to overcome that separation, to be present. So see, when you and I lay in bed at night tossing and turning, God, are you out there? God, don't you care? This is an unequivocal answer. Yes, I am here. And yes, I care. I have become flesh. But the second thing is that not only does God want to be in relationship with us, but he loves us so much, he came to us in a form which wouldn't disintegrate us. That's what the writer is saying. And the word became flesh so that we could behold his glory. In other words, what the writer is saying is that what Moses was told, no, Moses, Moses, what Moses got to know about, God, show me your glory. I'm sorry, Moses, I can't. If I do, you'll die. What Moses was told no about, we are told yes about in Jesus. That when God shows up in Jesus, he withholds nothing. All of his glory is on display. Do you want to know him? Come and see. Do you want to understand him? Come and see. Do you want to know if he loves you? Come and ask. Do you want to know if he cares? Just watch Jesus. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood so that we could finally be near him. 
In fact, the writer of this passage uses this incredible Greek expression. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the word in the original language is the word that gives off the idea of tabernacled. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that they had this tent as they were journeying that God had them build. And, and in the tent was the glory of God. And you couldn't go in the tent. You, you weren't allowed. If you went in the tent, you would die. So the tent was this ongoing representation of two things. God was with them, but not really. So if you were walking with your toddler past the tent and the toddler said, Daddy, what's in that tent? You would say, oh, the glory of God is there. And the kid would go, whoa. And you would say, I know. And then he would say, what's he like? And you would say, I don't know. Never met him. But you see, God has given us a greater tabernacle, not a tent with a mysterious presence that none of us can access, but he himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, making God's glory accessible to us. This is why the incarnation matters, because it means God doesn't want to be distant. It means that we can be near to God. It means God is not hiding from you. Hear me on this. If you today are distant from God, it is not because he wants it. It's not who he is. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood so that we could behold his glory. This is what we sing at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. There is not a single person here this morning, in West, in East, watching online, who needs to go one more second being distant from God. God has made himself available in Jesus. Which brings me to the really exciting point that I have for you, the third one which is what can happen because of this verse? What can happen because of this verse? I've already let you in on the first thing you need to know is that if this is true, you can know God. If this is true, he is not hiding from you. I'm telling you that the Bible is showing us that the answer to the prayer that every one of us has prayed, God, are you out there, has been unequivocally answered in Jesus. That God doesn't drop down into your bedroom because you would melt. He loves you too much to answer that prayer with a light show. He's answered it already in Jesus. But I want you to see that when he answers it, he answers it so incredibly well. I love what the writer says here. Look with me. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. By the way, don't you see how that phrase means so much more now that you know what comes before it? We've seen what Moses couldn't have, we have in Jesus. Glory as of the only son from the father. Now, what comes next is the form that glory took. And I wonder if you were writing this verse, what you think he would write. We beheld his glory and it was glory that shone like crazy. It was glory in that he levitated. 
It was the glory of his miracles. Like what proof, what evidence, what glory is the writer so excited to tell us about? But look, it is not what you expect. Look what he says. We have seen his glory, glory as of only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And I think, oh, why is that the form his glory takes? And the answer is, because it is the form that we need. Now, let me unpack this for you. I want you to remember that I told you in, the, in the, the story of the Bible, you know, previously on the Bible, there were two problems that were plaguing us, the problem of distance. We are separated from God. Whose fault is that? Ours. The problem of nearness, that God can't be in our presence or we would evaporate. Whose fault is that? It's ours. It, it was not that way when God made us. It was not the way God wanted it. It is entirely the consequence of your sin and my sin and every person who's ever lived. We, we have rebelled against God. We have not trusted God. And so he is distant because of us. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever because of something you've done or said, caused a relationship to be separated? No, probably not, because you're such wonderful people. But I have, okay? I have. I have offended people. I have hurt people. And I know what that feels like. They are distant from me. Even if we're in the same room, they are distant from me. And I dread their nearness. Do, do you know what I mean? I know that if we were to really sit down, if we were to really talk, we would have to talk about my sin. And so not only do I feel distant, but I dread their nearness. In that moment, what am I longing for? What will it take for that relationship to be put back together? The answer to that is grace and truth. Grace and truth. Let me explain why. First, the truth. Have you ever had someone, when you go to apologize to them, and you say, hey, listen, I said this, I did this, I'm sorry, and they just go, yeah, whatever, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Does that make you feel better or worse? Worse, right? Maybe you grew up in a family like mine where that's what you said, but what you really meant was, I reserve the right to bring this up later. <laughs> right? That doesn't feel, you, they say, oh, don't worry about it, I've already forgotten. And, you, and, and there's something in you that says, no, 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 that's, that's, that's too thin, that's too little. I, I, I need to name what I did. I need to hear you say, Zach, you said this, and it hurt me because of this, and it led to these consequences. I, I need to get it out there in the open. I need to name it. I need to point to it. I need us both to see how ugly it is, because only if I get that truth will your forgiveness mean anything to me. Do you understand that? By the way, this is totally free. This is not a sermon about reconciliation and bitterness. But I'm telling you, some of you, to put your marriage back together, all it really takes is the two of you being really honest about the sin that has happened, naming it, bringing it out into the light. Without truth, there can be no reconciliation. But then I also need grace. Do you know what grace is? Grace is getting a good thing when you deserve a bad thing. I love to teach my kids about grace. The story that always comes to mind for me is Deacon, my oldest son, who's 14. Uh, at the time, in this story, he was two or three, and, uh, you know, first kid, you're learning how everything goes. And I was at a Walmart with him once, and he's sitting in the front basket of the cart, and my wife can do, like, 12 things at once. I can do one thing, and not even that good, okay? 
So I'm trying to focus on grocery shopping. I, I don't know where anything is in the store. I don't know how to get, to, I'm walking up and down the aisles. I'm asking people, do you know where the green beans are? And do you know? And, and I don't know how much logic there always is where things are. And so I'm trying to figure out all this while my son has decided that he thinks it's hilarious to grab various items off the shelf and put them in the cart. Not things he wants, not like toys or coloring books, but just random stuff like canned peaches, boom, in the cart. And I keep finding things in the cart that aren't on the list, and finally I realize it's because he keeps doing this. So I say to him, Deacon, if you take one more thing off the shelf when we get to the van, I am going to discipline you. And he looks at me. So I said, that's it. When we get to the van, I'm going to discipline you. Now, because I can't find anything in the grocery store, we get to the van like 45 minutes later. And I'm realizing, I don't know a lot about kids, but I know this, a two-year-old has the memory of like a mosquito, okay? So if we get to the van and I discipline him, he's going to have no idea. He's going to be like, dad just snapped, right? Dad is disciplining me. I didn't do anything. I didn't. So I'm thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to deal with this? So I decide, ah, as a pastor moment, I will teach him about grace. So I say to him, I say, Deacon, I'm going to teach you about grace. He said, what's grace? And I said, well, grace is when you, you deserve something bad, like discipline, but you get something good, like a hug. And he says, that sounds great, right? So I said, you pulled an item off the shelf in the store after I told you not to. What you should get is discipline, but instead I'm going to give you a hug. I hugged him and we drove home and I felt good about myself as a dad and as a pastor. We're home like five minutes, um, unloading groceries from the car, and he does something, and his mom's got to discipline him. So she picks him up, throws him over her shoulder, takes him to the bathroom, and on the way, he's saying, Mom, have you heard of Grace? <laughs> Turns out she hadn't, by the way. <laughs> so you see, when I sin against you, when our relationship is broken because of me, I don't want you to sweep it under the rug. No, 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 that, that won't help me. I want you to bring it out into the light. I want you to name it. I want you to tell me how it hurts you. I want you to tell me the consequences. And then after we've brought it out and we've named it and we've looked at it and we've seen how ugly it is, then I need you to give me grace. I need you to say to me, even though you did this, and I would be justified in separating our relationship, Zach, permanently. I'm choosing instead to forgive you. That's what I need. That's what you need for your family to be put back together, for your marriage to be put back together, for your friendship to be restored. That's what we need. That's also what we need with God. That's why when Jesus comes, his glory isn't just in miracles. It isn't just in power. It's in grace and truth. When you read the ministry of Jesus, the, the preaching of Jesus, what you'll find is that he's always taking who we really are and bringing it out into the light. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say, oh, you're not that bad. Don't worry about it. Have a higher opinion of yourself. No, 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 no. He says things like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a person and lust, you've already sinned. He says, oh, your ugliness goes so much deeper than you think he's bringing it into the light. Why? Because he knows there cannot be any real reconciliation unless the ugliness of what we've done to separate ourselves from God is identified. He spends his entire ministry 
pointing out to us the ugliness of the things we do and say and have become and are. And right about the time he's got us just exposed and defeated and realizing that we're distant from God because of us. He goes to the cross. And he tells us, I didn't just come to show you everything you've done to break this relationship. I came to tell you that once I've convinced you I know everything you've done, I'm still going to forgive you. By the way, when Jesus goes to the cross, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but what are the two problems he encounters? Do you remember the two problems from the first point? The problem of distance. What does he say on the cross as he's dying? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus, fully God, from time immemorial, there was never a time in which he did not exist. There was never a time in which he was not in relationship with God. He becomes distant because he takes on my sin and yours. And then the problem of nearness, he literally dies under the judgment of God. The holiness, the righteousness, the majesty, the justice of God melts him so that it will not melt me. And when he dies, he has bridged the gap between me and God, between you and God, so that when he raises from the dead, he can say to us, I am going to prepare a place for you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, what he's saying is, beginning today and for eternity, you will once again be near to God, because I have taken on all that you've done to break the relationship, and I have died for it. Don't you see? That's the exact glory we needed. Shining, levitating, miracles will never do that for us. We needed a God who could lay us naked in all of our sin and all of our shame and still forgive us. The Word became flesh and He moved into the neighborhood and we beheld His glory and His glory was that He saw us and everything that we did and he died for us, and he forgives us, and he's risen, and he promises one day we will have what we were made to have, relationship with God forever. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. You could have remained at a distance. You, you could have said to us, you made this mess, you fix it. Of course, we never could have, but that would have been our fault, not yours. But you are so great and so kind and so loving that you took on flesh, that you moved into the neighborhood, that you tabernacled with us, that you named our sin and died for our sin and forgave us so that we might have relationship with you. We praise you for all that you've done and are doing and will do through Jesus Christ, our King. In his name we pray. Amen.